0: So if, if you're kind of looking at the first chapter, God is setting the stage with everywhere he's going in Malachi with chapter 1, the first few verses. Remember, he's, he's expressing his love to Israel. I've, I've loved you. I've always loved you. And yet, things aren't right in Israel. And specifically, he, he starts talking about priests in chapter 1, and he continues uh, singling them out, so to speak, in chapter 2. They were despising the name of God by offering unworthy sacrifices on the altar, by giving God their leftovers. Their worship was half-hearted. It was apathetic. It lacked reverence for who God was. And So it illustrates this truth that we talked about last week. What you offer to God, how you worship, reveals what you really think about Him. So, we should take this seriously, we should take this to heart, as Malachi will say, because the day is coming when when everybody everywhere that 's kids that 's what Jason taught you to, to to say about chapter one the day is coming when everybody every everywhere from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord will be great among the nations it 's happening it's will it will happen, and so don't turn your nose up at worshiping the way that God instructs the way that The people of Israel and specifically the priests did. And don't promise to do something for God or to give him something and then go back on your promise. Don't promise when you actually have no intention of fulfilling it. That doesn't please him. God is a great king. You wouldn't treat your earthly governor that way, Malachi says. So do we expect God to receive that kind of gift? No, of course not so chapter 2 continues the same rebuke for the, the priests of Israel. And as we read, I want you to notice that the first verse sort of summarizes what's already been said to the, to the priests at the end of chapter 1. He says, if you won't listen, if you won't take these things to heart, then there will be consequences. And actually, there already have been consequences. So let's read Malachi chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And now, O priests... This command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings and you shall be taken away with it. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You've caused many to stumble by your instruction. You've corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despise and abase before all the people, insomuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Would you pray with me? Lord, these these words are certainly specifically for the priests, as was pointed out in the first verse, and yet, Lord, these verses are for us, especially those who claim your name, who then would have been said to be part of the royal priesthood, as Peter puts it. And so we need, as we read through these things, not just to point a finger, unless it's pointing back at our own hearts. So help us to consider what these words mean for us today, as they meant to the priests then, Lord, and to evaluate our own ministries, if you will, to our families and our workplace, just with the Spirit, ourselves, Lord, help us to, to see these things for what they really are from your perspective and how to change based on what you say here. We thank you for this word. In Christ's name we pray, amen. So look at verse 1. This is the Lord saying, hey, priests, remember this command that I just talked to you about, the worship, that you've been kind of blowing it in? This is for you. Instructions on how to worship properly, on how to sacrifice, these things are for you. And so it needs to be understood by the people of Israel, yeah, but specifically by their spiritual leaders. These priests, they were the ones supposed to be teaching Godly ways and godly things to the people, right? So they're failing at it, and Malachi, the Lord through Malachi, is calling them out on it. That's what's happening here. Now, what problems, according to verse 2, were the priests having? They were the ears and the heart. They wouldn't listen. They didn't lay it to heart. They didn't take it to heart. And so we know that belief is a huge part of salvation. And yet a person has to hear the truth Paul points out in Romans, to hear the truth of the gospel, and then that truth has to affect their heart for regeneration to occur. Now these priests, here's the problem, they'd become deaf to what God was saying. They weren't hearing it. They weren't listening to God's commands. And then he says that their hearts had grown cold in recognizing his love for them. Their efforts in the priesthood, as we already discussed at the end of chapter 1, their efforts there had just taken on this ritualistic routine. Same thing, day in, day out. It's not that big a deal. We do this all the time. So why do I have to give God what's best? I'll just give him the lame animal, the sick one, the one that somebody took from somebody else. Not a big deal. And then the nice stuff I'll keep for myself. This is their mindset. They were giving God the leftovers, and God specifically says multiple times at the end of chapter 1 that this wasn't just a bad idea. He says this was evil. It was evil. And so it helps us understand that an evil pattern of thinking and behavior has consequences, brothers and sisters. It affects you. It affects those around you. Malachi Again, the Lord through Malachi is saying, look, if you will not take it to heart, so here it comes, if these things are not taken seriously, if you don't reorient your thoughts and behaviors around the honor of the name of the Lord, what's going to happen? Verse 2, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them. Why? Why does God do this? Well, he says at the end of verse 2, because you do not lay it to heart. Because you haven't taken these things seriously because you don't value the honor of my name. The name that will be great among the nations, right? The end of, or the middle of chapter one said, these priests were not valuing it or showing it worth. They did not take it to heart or lay it to heart. What does that, what does that exactly mean? Well, it conveys this, this concept of determining a course of action based on information that you've already received. Okay, take, lay it to heart or take it to heart. So taking something to heart isn't just hearing, but it's also putting it into practice, putting it into action. That's what it means to lay it to heart. So imagine if you go to a bee yard, an apiary, and, and the beekeeper says, don't play around the hives because you might get stung. Well, if you don't lay that to heart... What's going to happen? You're going to get stung. And the bee stings are proof that you did not lay his instruction to heart, right? Now, is it the beekeeper's fault that you got stung? Is it the bee's fault that you got stung? Well, you might argue that, but they're just protecting their homes, right? So it's not the beekeeper's fault who warned you. It's not the bee's fault necessarily. It's, It's your fault. You heard the instructions, stay away, don't play there, and yet you were stung as a result. The priests were not taking the holiness and worth of God seriously, and there were warnings down throughout the ages. Think of all the other Old Testament prophets. These are warnings of danger that come from not obeying God and his word and not taking him seriously, but the consequences for that are way worse than a few bee stings. He's gonna curse their blessings. He's gonna curse them. He says it's already happened. Way worse than some beast things. I mean, we're talking about God, the word that he uses here is letting loose, unleashing the devastation of his righteous judgment on Israel and on the priests because they ignored his instructions. He says he will curse their blessings. This is a divine oxymoron, if you will. But that isn't what God would want for his children. His desire is to bless them, and then for them to go and to be a blessing. That's what his intent was for the people of Israel, to bless them, and then they would carry that blessing to the nations, to others. But can God be a good father if he doesn't correct and discipline his people when they go astray? No. God must discipline, and he does discipline those he loves. So again, what's the problem here? It's a problem that you and I struggle with even in 2022. They were not taking to heart the honor of his name. The priest didn't care. And they showed it, they proved it by offering him leftovers, junk, as it were. And so as we were challenged last week to consider and evaluate, what, what offering are we giving to the Lord? We're not talking about animals and that sort of thing. We're even going deeper than financial offering to the Lord. What are we giving of ourselves, of our time, of our resources, of our everything? How are we honoring his name? I heard one commentator as I was reading this week say, God's name is serious business and nothing pollutes it more than the misconduct of those whose business is to honor it. And that's what the priests were doing. And if we are Christians, part of this royal priesthood, that's what Peter calls us in First Peter chapter 2, then we should probably pause here for just a moment and consider how we're either valuing or devaluing the name of the Lord. So here's three questions. They're in your notes. You can consider them as we pause this morning. Does your conduct throughout the day pollute the name of the Lord? Or does your behavior prove His rightful place in your life? Secondly, do your words honor His name and worth? Or do they dishonor him and belittle his glory and his creation? Thirdly, does your behavior indicate that you've not taken his glory and worth to heart? You know, Maybe you've been giving him your leftovers, not just on Sunday morning, but throughout the week. And now maybe you're dealing with some consequences of sin in your life. Because you've treated God as unimportant. Look, if we don't lay these things to heart, if we don't take the word and caution of the Lord seriously. We're in big trouble. Worse than getting stung in a bee yard. I don't know if you caught it or not, but as we read through just these first nine verses, Malachi uses the term Lord of hosts several times. And he, he's done it in chapter one as well, but I wanted to point it out at this point. So he uses that phrase, the Lord of hosts, 24 times in just, there's only 55 verses in Malachi. And he uses that phrase 24 times. So it's kind of important, almost once every other verse. It's a high percentage. And I find it really interesting, as I was looking into that, there's significance there, right? When you see repetition in scripture, there's significance there. So what is it for? Well, as I investigated this, I found it really interesting to discover that this phrase is rarely used until the prophets are called onto the scene. As they call people to repentance and warn of God's judgment, this phrase is used then more and more. Now, it is used before then, but it's used more and more. In fact, in Isaiah, he uses that phrase 59 times. That's a big book, but he uses it 59 times. Jeremiah uses it 80 times. Haggai uses it 12 times. Zechariah uses the term Lord of hosts 46 times. And then here Malachi uses it 24 times. So what's the significance of this? It is significant. What is the significance? When it's used in the Old Testament before the prophets, I said it is used a few times. When it's used there, it's almost always used to comfort God's people, talking about the Lord of hosts. Consider 1 Samuel 17, verse 45. David is going to face off against Goliath. Okay, that's the background. And he says this. 1 Samuel 17 says this. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. But I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied, defiled, defied. So it's, it's a, a way of comforting, not only challenging Goliath, but also comforting God's people who are listening to this young kid take a stand against the giant. And he says, the Lord of hosts is on our side. That's a comfort to the people, right? David was confident that the Lord and all of his heavenly armies And heavenly hosts were with him. And he gave him confidence and boldness to fight against Goliath in honor of the one true God. But by the time Isaiah and the rest of the Old Testament prophets enter the scene, the use of this phrase seems to shift from one of comfort to one of warning. That same God who will always be there for us, who always come through for us, the Lord of hosts, yeah, him and that same host, who at one point were going to save you, are now going to oppose you if you don't take the name and honor of the Lord seriously. If you don't take it to heart. Malachi says in verse 2 of chapter 2, he says he will send the curse upon them. I think the curse, it's not a curse, it's not any old thing. I think he's referring to the curse that's talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 28. Verse 15 I think the priests probably understood this. They knew this in their history. The people probably knew this, and yet they had put it out of their mind because of their lackadaisical worship. Here's what it says, Deuteronomy 28:15. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord your God or be careful to do all of his commandments and his statutes that I command you today, then all of these curses shall come upon you and overtake you. And then some of those are listed out in the rest of that chapter. Verses 45 and 47. All these curses shall come upon you and pursue you and overtake you because you did not obey the voice of the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes that he commanded you because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and with gladness of heart. Can you imagine the priests in Malachi's days? Sacrificing, knowingly sacrificing lame and sick and second hand items to the Lord with gladness and joy they weren 't doing it that way. If they were, it was a selfish joy like haha i 've fooled God and given him this junky offering to keep the best for myself they weren 't doing this with joyfulness and gladness of heart. the sins the, the priests sinned terribly in this, and Malachi says that the curse of the Lord was already upon them and i think this is what he means in verse 9 when he says so i make you de- despise and abase before all the people this is already happening so i make you in that verse 9 is is in the perfect tense so that that means that it's it's already happened in the past but it also has a continuing effect throughout the current day and in, even into the future so now we get to verse 3 and god takes it a step further here as if Verses one and two weren't enough to talk about the curse and blessing the cursing or cursing the blessings and that sort of thing. There's no doubt of what's going to happen. He says in verse three, behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. Now, if you think about the Hamilton's van, it's probably not a pretty sight. It's not a pretty smell either. If you've ever slaughtered an animal, or if you've ever um, killed one, you know, shot a deer and and field-dressed it, there's a lot of smells that go along with that. I, as about a 12-year-old kid, I used my dad's pellet gun, and on Thanksgiving Day back, I was probably, I think I was 11, I shot a rabbit. One shot with the pellet gun was all it took, but my dad's rule was, you shot it, you clean it. And so I did, or at least I started. And so I'm I'm cleaning this. He's showing me what to do. And I don't normally have a gag reflex. But it took everything I had to make it through cleaning that. And so my mom cooked this rabbit for Thanksgiving dinner. And it's there on my plate. And then it's on my fork. And it's right here. And I, I, I smell it again. And that's as far as it ever got. I couldn't do it. I remembered the smell of the animal. I remembered all of the things in its intestines and I couldn't finish it. And so what, what's happening here is, is the sacrificial system, guys, it's not a pretty system. Okay. It's not a pleasant thing. There's not pleasant aromas going on with this for the most part. There's lots of death and blood, and animal parts, and they were supposed to deal with them specifically. When an animal was killed for the sacrifice, there was usually stuff left in the system, kind of what came out on the Hamilton's van. In Exodus twenty nine fourteen, God actually gives instruction what to do with this sort of thing. He says to take the dung and the flesh and the skin of the animal and do what? Take it outside the camp and burn it outside the camp because it doesn't smell good and burn it. But here, what does God say is going to happen with the dung of the sacrifices? They're not going to take it outside the camp. It's going to spread it on their faces. Now this is graphic guys. You, you can tell this is serious. The priests are not reading this lightheartedly or hearing this lightheartedly. They're, they're getting what God is, is saying. He's going to rub their noses In this stuff. It just goes to show. God is communicating to the priests. Look, you've defiled yourselves by what you're doing. And you're going to be further defiled. Because of what you're doing. God is serious. Beyond serious about the priest's attitudes and actions. And carrying out the sacrifices. And he's serious about the way that you and I worship him too. The New Living Translation says... Instead of, you shall be taken away with it, it says, I will add you to the dung heap. That's that's a little more picturesque, isn't it? To the priest. I will add you to the dung heap. So just as the internal waste of the sacrificial animal was carried outside the camp and burned, what's being implied here is that the priest would also be discarded and suffer humiliation and loss of office. John MacArthur says that the Lord's purpose in this kind of a, a, very vivid warning was to shake them out of their complacency. Guys, if you don't change, if this continues on, I'm going to rub your faces in the dung of your bad sacrifices. Shake them out of that. Now, verse four, thankfully, shifts a bit, and there's there's actually a glimmer of hope here, a glimmer of light in this discussion. And he brings up Malachi brings up a good priest. You can, you can carry some correlation between Christ and what Levi is painted as here. Verses four through eight carry a very different tone than verse three does when referring to the Levitical line of priests. And he uses Levi as this example and he says this is, this is what used to be and this is what it ought to be even still. Uh, Levi and and his descendants were to be the, the Levitical priesthood. Uh, they were supposed to make intercession for the people. And, and there's a covenant under undergirding here that we need to understand. This is a covenant is a relationship that God uh made with them and then established by his word, and it is a series of blessings and cursings, which is the very thing that referred to the start of the chapter. In verse 1 and 2, when Malachi is talking about the command that's for the priests, he's saying, look, if you guys aren't aren't going to keep the Levitical covenant properly, then I'm going to keep it on my end. I'm going to make sure that those who violate it are disciplined, are punished. And in verse 4, the end of verse 4, that's how the covenant of Levi will stand, by God bringing it about. He's going to keep his part of it. But God's motive for discipline against these ungodly priests was that it would warn them back to a proper respect of the covenant. That was the point, to, sh- to shake them out of this complacency and remind them of this covenant, the one that he established with Levi. God was going to keep it even if the priests wouldn't. And in verses 5 through 7, it's explained why Levi is used as this example. So there's there's four areas, just real quick. You can fill these out in your notes. Number one is reverence. He feared me. This is said about Levi. He feared me. He stood in awe of my name. This just means Levi knew who he was. And more importantly, he knew who God was. He knew the reverence and awe that the person and name of God warranted. I like the way the New King James Version says this. It says, my covenant was with him. One of life and peace, and I gave them to him that he might fear me. So he feared me and was reverent before my name. So God's gifts, think about this, God's gifts were life and peace. Okay, what was Levi's part in this covenant? Fear the Lord. With him, the covenant stood firm as he carried out his priestly duties in the fear of the Lord. But the priests in Malachi's day had drifted significantly away from that. They no longer feared the Lord. Their worship was half-hearted at best, and so life and peace were being removed from them. Number two, the second way in which Levi is mentioned here in his his teaching, says true instruction was in his mouth. No wrong was found on his lips. What's this true instruction that he's talking about? Is you talking about Levi's opinion? Of course not. Deuteronomy 31. Then Moses wrote this law and he gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and to all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, listen to this, this is the command, assemble the people, men, women, little ones, even the sojourner within your town. So the the people visiting, bring them all, gather them together, that they may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God. And be careful to do all the words of this law, and that their children, who have not known it, generations to come, that their children may hear and also learn to fear the Lord your God, as long as you live in the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. What was the point of gathering the people, even the people visiting, was so that they might know and hear and fear the Lord for generations to come. Now, if you think about Exodus 20, so 10 commandments are given to Moses, the people there, what did they hear and see? An incredible scene. They saw smoke coming from the mountain. Lightning in the sky, they heard thunder and the blast of trumpets, and they don't know what is going on. They see all of this stuff, and it says that they were frozen with fear. Exodus 20, I'll read verses 18 through 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. They stood far off and said to Moses, you hear that? They stood far off and said to Moses, you speak to us. And we'll listen, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. So there's there's a lot of fear referenced here. And on one hand, they're supposed to fear, but then Moses says, do not fear. What in the world is happening? Well, I think we tend to look at fear as always a negative thing. Don't be afraid. And there's scriptures that we could point to that say, do not be afraid. Be strong and courageous, right? So what are we talking about when fear is a, a positive thing, when it's a good thing? What's the point of the lightning and the thunder and the smoke and the trumpets and all of that stuff? It was to instill the fear of God in the people. Why? Look back at verse 20 of Exodus chapter 20, that you may not sin. God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. That was the point, that they might not sin. Oswald Chambers says this, the remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. I think that's true. All Levi's teachings Rested on the law of God, the divine law of God. And as he faithfully taught and explained these truths to the people, it says that no wrong was found on his lips. Brothers and sisters, when we explain the truth of God's word by the power of the Spirit, we're doing a good thing. And when we, insofar as we do that, we're not saying anything wrong. No wrong was found on his lips, it says. But notice that it wasn't just the words that he spoke. Verse 6, the end of verse 6, shows that his lifestyle, the way he walked, was also true. And this brings us to our third point. That was his character. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. So it's said that Levi walked with God in peace and uprightness. This is really important for a priest in the Old Testament. Because one of the things that they were to do was to settle disputes. Somebody comes to them with a dispute... A disagreement, and the priest was to act as a judge here, to rule, to give a judgment. Especially when it came to disagreements about the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, the law, that's where the priest really was was interceding, and he was entering in to these disagreements. So as, as Levi faithfully fulfilled his duty of teaching and living righteously, what does it say happened? As he did these things, as he not only spoke the truth, but he lived the truth. It says many were turned from iniquity. He turned many from iniquity. This leads us to our fourth thing. It's very similar to the second one of teaching. This is instruction. Number four. It says the lips of the priest should guard knowledge. And people should seek instruction from his mouth. Because he's a messenger of the Lord of hosts. It's a priest's duty to not only study and know the word of God. But to instruct others in doing that as well. So it's passing it along. He is He's a messenger of the Lord of hosts, it says. So if anyone should be speaking on behalf of God in those days, who should it have been? The priests, right? They were his messenger. I pointed this irony out probably a week or two ago now. But it's just the priests were supposed to be the messengers of God. And yet God had to send someone named Malachi, whose name means my messenger, to correct them. God needed to send a messenger to correct the messengers. They were supposed to guard knowledge, it says. And it's interesting that part of the priest guarding knowledge was giving it away. Do you see that? They were supposed to instruct others in the same thing. That's how they guarded knowledge. People should seek instruction from his mouth, it says. Now, we tend to think of it the other way around, right? To guard knowledge, you keep it. You think on it. But, I mean, surely if the Dark Ages taught us anything, it's that the word of God belongs in the hands of people, in the minds of the people. We give it away as we teach it. Not only do we get it better, but we're giving it away, and therefore we're keeping it pure we're giving instruction away we're guarding the knowledge of this truth as insofar as we're teaching it properly and so levi is this example that's set up here kind of this bright spot in in a real uh, kind of a downer of a section here where are talking about spreading dung on their faces now levi is lifted up here's how it was here's how it ought to be but now he goes and he proves another point in verses eight and nine he shows Israel's current priests, here's how you've not measured up. Number one, they turned aside from the way. Ironically, not ironically, sovereignly, Peter used that same kind of phrase in 1st and 2nd Peter, talking about turning aside from the way. This is what the priests were doing. The way was there. The way was available. The way was instructed to them. Some had walked it before, Levi, but they chose to turn aside from it. And to do their own thing to keep the best for themselves to not treat the name of the God n- name of the Lord with honor. Number 2, they caused many to stumble by their instruction. Notice how this is directly opposite of what said of Levi? By Levi's example, many were turned from iniquity, but by these priests' example, they caused many to stumble. They had turned aside from the proper way and so they caused many to be distracted and disobedient from what God had called them to do. Brothers and sisters, your lifestyle affects more than just you—good and bad. Some can be turned by how you live, and some can be can some can stumble by how you live. Jesus reminds us in Mark chapter nine. You've heard the story about he's talking about the little ones, and he says it'd be better that you have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the ocean, and to cause one of these little ones to stumble that 's pretty graphic, too the little ones there he 's not talking about age of children he 's talking about people who are following him as his disciples, who were humble in spirit, who were poor in spirit, the humble ones so it 's one thing to go astray yourself, and I think this is reflected here in malachi too it 's one thing to just go astray yourself, but if you cause others to go along that same way into destruction. You're in real trouble. And this was the message being conveyed to the priests in Malachi's time. It's very serious indeed. Number three, it says that they corrupted the covenant, the covenant of Levi. Violated, maybe in your, in your Bible is another word for corrupted, things that were not sanctioned by the Lord. That's what that means. They disregarded God's instruction for themselves. So how are they going to teach it to somebody else? They failed to keep the covenant regarding proper priesthood, and they polluted it not just in the people's eyes, but in the Lord's eyes. Fourth way they did not measure up was that they showed partiality in their instruction. The priests were supposed to decide cases based on integrity, based on truth, but they apparently were ruling with some kind of bias. There was some amount of favoritism being shown here. Some people were receiving justice from the priests and some others were being treated unfairly. It would seem the teachings, the judgments, the leadership of the priests, they were all out of order. They're all tarnished because their lives, their beliefs about God, their respect for his name were all out of order. It was all tarnished. And because this was the case, what does God say? So I will make, so I make you despise and abase before all the people. And it's already happening. Things were not good in the camp of Israel, in large part because things were not good in the priests, in the priesthood. God had appointed them for the purpose of purifying the people and guarding the truth, but they themselves had become the source of the pollution. So what's the point for us? What do we take from this? None of us are offering animal sacrifices. None of us are receiving those kinds of things. So what does this mean? What's the point? We'll look back at verse two for just a moment. Chapter two, verse two. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, just stop there. God, according to his faithful love for his people, I think still holds out the solution for reconciliation. He's holding it out to the priests. If you're not going to do these things, here's everything that's going to happen. But someone did do those things, and it went well. Levi still holds out the solution for reconciliation. He says, listen. So if, if we reverse these things, he says, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart. So if we do listen, if we do take it to heart, what will happen? What are we going to do? What are we going to take to heart? What are we going to listen to to give honor to his name? So I think, I think every believer, I would hope every believer wants to be described like Levi in this chapter. You want to know and understand God's word better. You want to be able to teach it. You want to have a life marked by holiness. You want to impact others positively with the truth of scripture by your speech and lifestyle both. But I think many of us probably can identify more with the priests of Malachi's day than with Levi. So what do we do? If we're there, if we find ourselves identifying more with the the evil priests than the honorable man of Levi, what do we do? I think this the message is simple and it's found in verse 2. Listen. Take it to heart. Listen to what? Take what to heart? Listen to the words of God. Take his word to heart. Take his holiness to heart. His honor, his glory. And when we do these things, when you care about the character and worth, and when you value God as you ought to, well, your lives are changed. And when our lives are changed, in living those changed lives, in living a life changed by His Word and the message of truth, will we honor His name. It's, it's almost like this, this beautiful scriptural cycle of giving honor to His name and living a holy life. And the more you do one, the more you'll do the other. The more you want to do, the more you want to honor His name because you see His worth. But if we're we're without Christ, if we don't have that view of God in our minds, well, it's not just the priests, it's not just Christians who are called to honor His name. Because one day, what what does it say? If we believe God's word, the end of chapter 1, verse 14. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Every person, including those who don't know Christ personally, every person is formed and made in the image of God. And what are we made in the image of God to do? Isaiah tells us to give him glory, for his glory. The day is coming when the name of the Lord will be feared, it will be revered among all the nations, And we are living now, as we've talked about the last several weeks, in the age of God's patience. His patience is ruling now. We live in the age of salvation. It's still there. The hand of reconciliation is still there. You have the opportunity today to joyfully give yourself over to the Lord who shows us great kindness in sending Christ, great patience in waiting even now, And he's offering this reconciliation to us today. Will you receive it? Are you listening? Are you taking this to heart? You can. Our hope is that you would, and that it would change the way that you think, change the way that you act. And when it does, that gives God glory, that brings honor to his name. Let's pray. Lord, I cannot sufficiently honor who you are if my lifestyle is out of step with what I know to be true from your word. The priests were there. They could not honor your name properly because they they didn't see you for who you were. Lord, you are a holy God. The only holy God. Help us to see a a fresh view of that. And that affects our lives in the day to day. Because if you are that holy, if you are who you say you are, then I need to live my life differently. I need to treat my my spouse differently. I need to train my kids differently. I need to care about the events of this world in a different way. If you're really there and you're really holy in the way that Scripture says you are, then things have to change here in my life. And so I pray that you would do that change. Lord, I pray that we would enter into that with you, that we would give you our heart so that you might make it new. And that we would go and live for you in light of these things. Lord, in doing so, we bring honor to your name. Lord, when we've failed to do that, when we will fail to do that, Lord, I pray that we would run back to the arms of Christ. That we would be reconciled yet again, repent of our sin, and turn to Jesus. Lord, thank you for your patience and love. And I pray that we would be so moved by that today that we would cry out to you for salvation and hope. Thank you for Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.